I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's podcast has been sponsored by Libro.fm Audiobooks. Libro, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out the recommendations and curated lists from people like me who know books best and also from local booksellers. You can go on Libro.fm playlists and look at the Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books playlist and go from there. If you enter code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, you'll, at checkout, you'll get three audiobooks for the price of one. So please check it out. Z-I-B-B-Y, three audiobooks for the price of one. I am so excited to be interviewing Dolly Alderton, who's the author of the Sunday Times bestselling memoir, Everything I Know About Love, which is just now coming out in the U.S., It won a National Book Award, was nominated for Waterstone's Book of the Year, and a British Book Award. It's been translated into 20 languages. Dolly has been a freelance journalist for The Sunday Times, Marie Claire, Glamour, Cosmopolitan, Elle, GQ, and many other publications. She wrote a dating column in The Sunday Times Style section. She's the co-host and co-creator of The High Low, a current affairs and pop culture discussion show, and Britain's leading women's podcast, with one million downloads per month. She also created and hosts a podcast miniseries called Love Stories. In 2019 to 2020, she went on a 22-date book tour called Everything I Know About Love Live. She has two scripts in development, including the TV adaptation of this book. Dolly has been featured in Forbes 2018, 30 Under 30, The L List, and many more. She currently lives in London. So welcome, Dolly. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be talking to you. You too. Would you mind please telling listeners what this amazing book, Everything I Know About Love, which for anybody who doesn't have it in front of them, it's a cover. It says everything I know about parties, crossed out, dates, crossed out, friends, crossed out, jobs, crossed out, life, crossed out, and all that you're left with is love. I hope that made sense. (laughs) So the title is Everything (laughs) I Know About Love. Tell me about what this book is about for everybody listening. Yes, of course. And while you're while we're talking about that book jacket, I've had lots of mothers of young children say that their children are absolutely fascinated by the book jacket because they can't believe that someone was allowed to scribble all over it. <laughs> that's awesome. obviously that's the first thing you're taught as a kid is you don't scribble on books. <laughs> Very true. Uh, so the book is it's so weird to be clicking my head back into talking about the book and what it was because you know I wrote it when I was twenty eight. And I'm now the grand old age of 31. And as we all know, <laughs> that kind of is like the dog years thing from one's late 20s to early 30s. Sometimes when I pick up the book now and I read from it when I have to you know, do a reading or write about it, I'm just like, who is this maniac in these pages who I just do not recognize at all and definitely wouldn't go for a drink at the pub with. So, <laughs> yeah, so what the memoir is uh, I wrote it when I was 28 and it is kind of chronicling my 20s. It's a kind of age story, I suppose. It begins with me talking about my teenage life, a bit about being a student at university and then the, the kind of very 
scary, turbulent, exciting, glamorous, disgusting time of flat sharing when you move to a city, which my city was London, with my friends from university and kind of carving out who I wanted to be and what my job was going to be and that kind of collective experience of sailing into the beginning of womanhood with my mates. Um, (laughs) And then it talks about the kind of various dysfunctions and disasters mainly manifested through my love life through my mid to late 20s and then takes me and then by the end because I wrote another chapter for the paperback which is about turning 30 which I had a very Rachel Green meltdown about (laughs) (laughs) so I kind of charted that strange kind of you know because it's weird because I think our parents generation you know, being in your 20s really was the arrival to adulthood. And certainly where I am in England and London, there definitely is a sense now that millennials, their adolescence sort of goes on until they're about 30. So that really did feel like a kind of big moment of change. And then so within that, to be honest, when I was writing it, I didn't really know what the kind of big themes or what the big overarching story of it was. I just wrote about things that have been important or formative or funny or moving in my kind of short life thus far. And then it was only when I went to kind of reflect at the final chapter on what the book had been about, I realized it was a love story, not a romantic one. I always thought that my memoir would end with me falling in love with, I don't know, Colin Farrell lookalike. Ultimately, it was more of a story about the love that we develop with ourselves as we kind of get to know and accept ourselves as we age. And also for me, particularly, the love that I've had with the women that I've shared my life with and with my female friends. That is an incredibly protracted and waffly answer to your very succinct question. (laughs) That's okay. I loved it. I loved hearing your point of view (laughs) about it. You know, the great thing about this book is you include scenes like you know, taking a taxi in the middle of the night to try to find some guy you were having a hankering for at that particular time and ending up with no money stranded like across London or wherever you are to really poignant scenes where you talk about losing a friend to eating issues that you had to dinner dates where you have to, you know, out of some philosophical vendetta sort of have to Go into the bathroom and get money wired to you so you don't allow a man to pay for you. I mean, it's all over and it's it's perfect because that is exactly what life is like, especially in your 20s, which for me was a lot longer ago than it was for you. (laughs) And I wish I had sort of chronicled life in my 20s the way you did. I mean, I think that's the brilliance of this all is like, does anyone remember and who can write about it so well and in such a relatable, funny way? And anyway, I thought it was fantastic as... Well, here's the key, Zibby, is you have to be a a, a really self-obsessed theatrical person who (laughs) writes everything down that happens to them in pathetic little diaries for their entire (laughs) life. That's the key. (laughs) That's the secret. Okay, now I know. (laughs) You were too busy actually living life and being engaged with your glorious life. I was just assessing (laughs) and analyzing it. (laughs) I don't know about that. but (laughs) So why is this only now coming out in the U.S.? Because America just didn't want me to be. What? I can't believe it. <laughs> no, they didn't. And do you know what? It's not something that I took offense to. I think that there's like, there's a bit of a disconnect with the translation between American and English culture because like with me growing up, 
all I wanted to be as a teenager was American. It was all I dreamed of. And all my friends were the same. All we did was watch American shows. All we did was watch MTV and Nickelodeon and love, you know, fall in love with American bands. Other than the Spice Girls, that's the one great export that we gave to uh, teen culture when I was growing up. Thank you for that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, So, I, uh, you know, it's quite a common thing, I think, in England that Americanism is synonymous with modernity and excitement and coolness and, uh, yeah, something really exciting. So, for me, it's very normal to watch something American or read something American which is littered with Americanisms or is very much embedded in American culture and just to Google what something is. So I've, you know, never lived in America, but I know what an ATM is. I know what alimony is. I know what, you know, candy is. I know that jelly is not the same wobbly stuff that we eat here. And I know that pants are definitely like respectable items that you wear on your bottoms rather than what we call knickers, (laughs) (laughs) which are, you know, undergarments. So I, I think that for some reason, English people are, maybe it's just because there's so much more American culture that we consume, um, that it, it's very easy to do that kind of, we have like an embedded Google Translate, I think. Whereas I think English, doing it the other way around, English to America, it just feels much more esoteric. And, you know, culturally America and England, I have lots of friends who live in America and a lot of kind of exiled Brits moved over to America the transatlantic thing it there is particularly when you're talking about youth culture I think it is a very very different experience there are like lots of you know generally speaking so I think that there was just a nervousness understandably I totally understand it when American publishers were reading my books that it was it was just too specific the Englishness of it it was just too anglicized I think that's I mean I I totally disagree. And I'm glad that finally that this is coming out here. I mean, I feel like we have so much fascination here with things there, all the the royal family and Downton Abbey and the crown. And I I don't know. I feel like there's such a focus right now on all things UK related. But what do I know? (laughs) Well, do you know what? I think that I am going to be very, very, very lucky to be riding off the totally beautiful and breathtaking coattails a flea bag success in America. And I'm hoping that because because America welcomed in this kind of gorgeous hot mess of a character, that maybe they will be more acclimatized to a 20-something woman running around London having completely ridiculous sex and <laughs> drinking every pub out of every bottle of wine possible. Not, I mean, I could only dream of being 1% as talented as Phoebe Waller-Bridge but I do think that maybe maybe I'm going to be lucky that that's something that at the moment people that kind of British transgression in, in young females is something that they're like more familiar with and I don't know she's whetted their appetite really well obviously because it's such an incredible incredible piece of work Yes. So thank you. Thank you to Phoebe for paving the way for more amazing <laughs> yeah. British uh, yeah, God. shows thank like you yours. Thank Phoebe for so much. <laughs> so I found it interesting, all the things you have done to raise awareness of you, your brand, everything. You have things like the Dolly Mail. You have you took your book on the road and made it a live show. You now have a pot, two podcasts. Tell me about your brain and how you're coming up with these <laughs> ideas and 
it's the whole process. Do you just come up with ideas all the time and then debate which ones to pursue? Or how does it all happen for you? Well, do you know what? You're speaking to me now at an interesting time that I've never, ever been in in my career before because I've always been one of those kind of multi-hyphenate people that I've always had lots of different things on the go in my early 20s and mid-20s. I had a full-time actual grown-up office job where I was a TV producer and then I was a freelance writer in the evenings and at weekends and then I went fully over to freelance writing when I was 26 and beyond that I was, yeah, I started a podcast nearly four, yeah, four years ago and then I did a newsletter for a while and then I also was writing scripts and I think first of all the reason why I've always just like wanted to straddle lots of different types of writing and and kind of conversations and interviewing uh, kind of formats so one wasn't really enough I think to keep me stimulated initially I'm just quite a greedy person I think (laughs) I think I just wanted to try it all and I'm like that across every every aspect of my life I think I've always been someone who's really just 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 wants to do it all intensely and feel a lot a lot of the time and I think that I just really channeled a lot of that kind of ravenousness into pursuing lots of different avenues with work and to be totally honest when I went when I first went freelance as a journalist it was just I couldn't make a living just from doing journalism so I had to think on my feet a bit about how I could make money because I did want to make money I really didn't want to be you know scraping by month by month so so yeah I've been like last year was sort of the peak of it and it was crazy I was doing and I also must caveat this (laughs) because I know busy bragging is really fucking annoying so (laughs) I know stop not at all lots of people have to juggle lots of different things as well as like incredibly difficult family and financial situations this was very much my choice but it just it did slightly get to breaking point last year where I was doing, yeah, I did a 22 day tour of my, of which was like a live version of my book to promote the book. And then I was doing, it was published in lots of different language languages, thankfully. So I was having to do press in lots of different countries. And then I had two scripts in development, one of which was the TV adaptation of the book. And I was writing a weekly column and I had a weekly podcast. And then I launched a new podcast series called Love Stories that was in conjunction with the publication of the book. And I was trying to put, uh, put together a proposal for my novel. And I, I just, I just reached social breaking, but I just couldn't. Because the other thing is as well, it's like, you know, the greatest, I can't write anything. And I'm no use to anyone if I'm not living life, because you can't, you can't like go and you can't write about, things in a vacuum I can't the only novel I would have been able to write last year is like what it's like to be interviewed by lots of people <laughs> and what's it like to have lots of meetings and what what is it like to go to you know sleep in lots of regional British hotels and eat basically every pret sandwich available and you know I, I am such a it's quite a sort of romantic notion but all my favorite writers endorse this when I've read you know Zadie Smith says this A.A. Gill who's a British writer who's very important to me says this the thing that you have to do if you want to write truthfully and movingly and in an entertaining way and in a poignant way is you have to go live you have to go love and feel and lose and observe and taste 
and you know live enjoy enjoy it all and and feel the pain of things and observe observing observing is a really important thing and you just need space in your life to do that so that's and I just can't if I'm not all the other stuff is fun but if I'm not writing then I'm sort of miserable and useless so I decided this year to to just do a writing year so literally to be all I do now since September is I'm writing a novel and I get up go for a walk get a coffee look at the sky (laughs) come back sit in front of the laptop write go out see my friends drink a bit too much wine share gossip have them slag off their husbands and boyfriends to me write it all down in my notebook (laughs) come back and go to bed and start again the next day I've never had the luxury of this much space before just focusing on one project and I do the high low every week my podcast every week but that's only one day and I've got to say it's nice this way of living (laughs) I really really do see the appeal the appeal of this kind of having a building a big relationship with just one project or just one pursuit it's it's really I'm really enjoying it huh I love that I know I feel like I can be a bit all over the place myself myself so hearing this advice for you I'm very much taking this to heart I feel like I try to do a lot of different things because I get very excited but you know (laughs) and you know what like I thought I'd be panicked I'm not panicked I'm still waiting for that for that FOMO of like oh I should be not enough people are knowing what I'm doing. My work's not reaching enough channels. I'm not being inventive enough. I should be being more innovative. I, I just don't feel it. I just feel pure joy every day. Uh, just being able to kind of, it's like a love affair. It's like I've just like decided to marry someone and be monogamous for a year, having been, <laughs> you know, sitting from person to person to person to person. And yeah, I'm just enjoying the monogamy. Well, tell me about this this new relationship you're in. What is this book about? <laughs> so it's called Ghosts, and it's the sort of predominant story is it's about a woman in her early 30s who decides to try dating for the first time. She spent all of her 20s in a, in a very sort of comfy relationship, um, so she's never really dated before, and she decides to date in her early 30s and she becomes the victim of ghosting, which I'm sure, do you know what ghosting is? Yes, I actually, do you know the book Ghosted by Rosie Walsh? She's also British. Oh, no, don't tell me this. No, should (laughs) I not? No, she was on my podcast too about a year and a half ago, maybe. Yeah, her name's Rosie Walsh and it's a novel called Ghosted. I should stop talking about it's about a man and, you know, the woman's been ghosted, but there's a whole backstory that you, sort of like a mystery that you learn about as it goes on. Oh, cool. I mean, it is really like, it is very dramatic. It's, I mean, I was amazed when I was kind of cooking it up. I was like, I feel like this hasn't been written about that much. And, you know, someone who has been the victim of ghosting more than one time, it is, it does feel like it's the only time in my life where I felt like I was engaged in a thriller. I remember my friends being like, it's like a murder mystery. Where's he gone? Where's he disappeared to? How could you have had all this closeness and all this intimacy? You think you know each other so well and this person has vanished. It's, you know, it is a very dramatic kind of premise and very haunting, you know, as, as the word accurately suggests. And it can really haunt you for a long time if you don't get your answers. So that's the that's the kind of main thrust narrative thrust. And then there's there's a second story that runs through, which is about her father who is suffering from dementia. So it's her kind of 
you know, dealing with a vanishing man in her love life and potentially a kind of metaphorically and physically vanishing man in her family. Wow, that sounds great. Oh, thank you. Do you know what? The first half was bliss and I loved every minute of it. And then I took three weeks off over Christmas and just ate so many roast potatoes and drank <laughs> so much red wine. And now I've come back, I'm like, oh, second half, this is a little bit tougher, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Talk to me a little about your podcast, The High Low, and how that you've grown that to be. I'm, like, so jealous that you have, like, a bazillion downloads per episode. No, I'm kidding. But how did you grow that to be <laughs> such a huge success? And, like, what are, what are your tips? What do you think people respond to the most? So, um, can I ask how long your podcast has been going for? About two years. Do you know what? I reckon it was about two years things suddenly went a bit bananas with the high-low. And apparently this is a pattern that is you see over and over again with podcasts because we're still kind of examining how podcasts build. You know, it's such a new method of, of entertainment. And everything, we need to think differently about everything with podcasts, how we make revenue from it, how we build listenership, how we build trust. It's such a different medium to anything we've seen before. And someone said to me once, kind of podcast expert and it's such a boring answer but it's so true the key for building a massive audience with podcasts is longevity and the more content that the larger your back catalogue and the more that you're putting it out week on week on week it's just as simple as that's what makes it the most successful across the board so I think that's a boring answer you know we started it we had a prototype podcast that we did for about six months and that was like four years ago and then the high-low has been going for three years. So we've been at it for a while. And I think I think we're such a smaller place here, the UK, obviously. So it's such an obvious thing to say. But <laughs> <laughs> on our tiny, teeny island. But there weren't that many women doing two-handed podcasts, whereas the American podcast market, I think there are much more women doing what we do. Uh, I think we're quite lucky. We were one of the first pairings to do it and we still sort of are one of the first pairings to do it particularly talking about the news and I also think the thing that people because to be totally honest with you and I I shouldn't say this and it will sound like I'm just being self-deprecating I'm like quite amazed at how well it's done I still can't believe the figures of the downloads we get and you know I, I back I back us and I think we do a good show but I'm still sort of flummoxed that of anything I've done in my career, this is the thing that's like really, really taken off in quite a massive, like quite a mind-bending way. And sometimes Pandora and I, who's my co-host, we were reading, so we now get 300,000 listens a week. And we were reading something about circulation of British newspapers and the circulation of British magazines. And then we were talking about what seemed like big numbers and what seemed like not so big numbers. And we were like, oh, well, you know, Vogue still gets, I can't remember the exact number, it was like a hundred and something thousand a month. We were like, that's massive. And then we were like, oh, we're triple that. We have, we have, and it's not people, it's not people's eyes, it's people's ears. But it's kind of, it's kind of mad when you think of that because it just suddenly feels like this conversation I have with this woman in her living room with two microphones every week you know, it's important to remind yourself of those of that listenership because that's a huge responsibility in terms of what you're saying to people. And not only that, it also is can make you very vulnerable. So it just requires a lot of thought now when we talk. Whereas at the beginning, it was just 
you know, we had like 8,000 people listening, mainly our parents' friends. <laughs> but yeah, I think the other, I think the reason why people maybe, I mean, I, this is how perplexed I am by how well it's done today. I actually find it quite difficult to work out exactly what the formula has been that's made it work. I think, I think the fact, as I said, that it wasn't a saturated market. And then I also think, you know, we're in a culture now online of supreme self-assured expertise on everything is is the currency that's what people want people want to not be corrected they want to not contradict themselves they want to not be humiliated and shamed they want to be perfectly politically correct they want to seem like a good person who's entirely fair and ethical all the time across every single subject and to every single group every single oppressed group and it doesn't matter if they're trying and learning they have to have gold star behavior at all costs at all times and i think i think people are really scared of their own fallibility in terms of their knowledge and curiosity and empathy and what the hilo has always tried to do is provide a space of where you can ask the stupid question and you shouldn't while always being thoughtful and empathetic and curious you shouldn't be scared of gaps in your knowledge and being called ignorant or contradictory should not silence you. A fear of being called that should not silence you in learning more about the big, varied, fantastically interesting world that we live in. Well, that was excellent advice. Thank you for that pep talk. (laughs) (laughs) Especially with uh, the U.S. election around the corner, I feel like, I don't know, I'm always afraid to say anything. So anyway, thank you for that. I I appreciate it. (laughs) I know, I know. So I was actually in the U.K. I was in London very recently, and I was dragging my daughters to a bunch of bookstores. And I was like, wait a minute, Dolly, who I'm interviewing, wrote the U.K. introduction to I Feel Bad About My Neck. I have to go find this book. (laughs) So anyway, because I read, obviously, it's one of my favorite books, Nora Ephron's I Feel Bad About My Neck collection of essays and everything. And I got the new copy so I could read your introduction, which was so fantastic. I read it on the plane that I was like, I wish I had time because now I'm dying to reread this book that I haven't read. And I don't know. So anyway, it was fantastic. How did that come about that you wrote the introduction? That's so lovely of you. Thank you so much. I was so nervous about writing that because obviously it's a book that means so much to so many women and you want to be able to to really showcase and and represent why it means so much to so many women. And the fact is, like, I think it is one of those books you can reread and reread and reread because it takes on a different meaning at every age of womanhood. It was a totally different book when I read it now to when I first read it in my early 20s. And it came about, the opportunity came about to introduce it because, I mean, I've just been harping on about Nora Ephron for years. I'm a a deeply obsessive person. And, you know, when someone is formative or inspiring to me, I basically will tweet and write and reference and talk about them from now until eternity. And (laughs) so I think people have just heard me stuff. And I quote her a lot. I quote her a lot in my writing. Um, so I think people have heard me. And I write about films a lot. So I just, just, I just blithered and blithered and blithered and blithered until some someone got the message that I absolutely love Nora Ephron. So I think that, you know, I, I accidentally sort of not accidentally really pushed an agenda. <laughs> <laughs> you like willed it to happen. You just uh, put it yeah, out exactly. there. and uh... <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. 
Back to your book for a minute. You documented your previous eating disorder very openly and candidly and said it was just due to a stroke of luck that you met Leo, your former boyfriend. Otherwise, you would have kept on getting thin and that there was no secret sauce to your recovery. It was just sort of an accident that you recovered. I just was hoping you could tell me a little bit more about that time in your life. Yeah, so it's so funny. Now, I'm really glad I wrote that when I did because I think that conversations around bodies are being really, really marshaled at the moment. And I think that there's probably a time not far away, in fact, people probably already think this, where writing about that chapter could be seen, writing about that chapter in my life could be seen as problematic for some people because I am very honest about the fact that I had never really thought about my weight that much. I was quite a big kid. I was quite a big girl as a teenager. And that never really, it didn't bother me that much. didn't really preoccupy me. And then I had a, a big heartbreak. And the only way that I could kind of gain any sort of control or a sense of love of lovability was getting incredibly small, incredibly fast. And the thing that I think people maybe might find difficult about it, and I think this is something that lots of women have spoken to me since about it and said it's something that resonated with them is, you know, it was if it was like really fun being being that ill and being that thin, even though it was torture and uh, really battered up my body in a way that I, I still feel I'll, I am still recovering from like 10 years later. The fact is I can't ignore the world that we operate in as women and what we're told makes you worthy of love and what makes you feel important and powerful and seen and it did make me feel very powerful and I think the I can't remember exactly how I worded it in the book it was something like my health was plummeting but my stocks were up and that that was the thing that was really difficult um is that everyone I was treated differently I moved through the world differently when I was that thin and that was that was a very addictive false sense of um, control in a world that had kind of been turned upside down for me. Yeah, and there, I mean, to be honest, I've spoken to I've spoken to friends because writing that chapter and people reading it, I had lots of people close to me say that, you know, I was very young, I was 21, and my mum dealt with it as best as she could while knowing that I, there was nothing really she could have done while I was in that headspace. She just tried to keep me as safe as possible. And I think lots of friends to know how to handle it. Like this is the awful thing that happens when, when like disaster strikes, when you're, when you're in your early twenties, it's like no one's equipped really to deal with it. And lots of friends have said that they read that chapter and they regret that they weren't more forthcoming with their concerns for me or that they didn't, they weren't more interventional. I think if I had carried on that way, there probably would have come a time where the intervention would have had to have come from my friends and my family in a bigger way than it already had. But as I mentioned, I, fell in love with someone who cared for me very deeply very early on which I haven't ever had before and he became aware that this was an issue in my life and I was open with him about it in a way that I hadn't been with anyone and then you know managed to get to a place of recovery and then again the other thing that I think people sometimes find unsavory or uncomfortable to read about in the book is I'm very honest about the fact that since I was in my early 20s I have lived a lifestyle that is healthy and sustainable and uh, sensibly content. 
once you've put yourself through that kind of regime of punishment and self-control and sorry, self-control is the wrong word, not self-control, it's self-deprivation and self-sabotage, you, it's very, very difficult, difficult to unwire yourself completely from those sorts. And those sorts do kind of stick around for a long time. I hope they won't stick around forever. They still do stick around now, to be totally honest. <laughs> um, but I don't, I don't regret writing it because I think to pretend that we live in a world where thinness isn't fetishized and being honest about how disastrous and what the long-term effects that can be for someone even in recovery, I, I don't think not being truthful about that is helpful or, or like a feminist issue. I think I think it's like much more helpful to talk about the, the gnarliness of that. Well, that was again. That, one, that was incredibly one, long. Answer. No, no, that was one of my favorite parts of the book. So I'm glad you kept it in, and oh, I found it interesting. You know, you wrote about it from a different perspective, and I don't know. I loved it. It was one of the most memorable parts for me. So I'm glad you kept oh, it. Oh, thank you so much. Thank <laughs> I know you. we're kind of running out of time. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors other than moving to London and getting up and going for a walk and spending your day writing and then <laughs> gossiping with friends at night, which sounds like heaven, <laughs> heaven, heaven, heaven? Yeah. Yeah, and I must say, it took me like, I'm doing this for 10 years. It took me 10 years to get to a point where I could do that. And I'm very aware that this is a moment of freedom and luxury in my life where, because of the success of my last book, I can do that. And it might just be one hot moment, and then I won't be able to do that again. And, you know, I, I, I still manage to, like, write books and write screenplays and juggle lots of things and be very, very happy while doing it. Uh, during a time where I had to have lots of things on the go and I couldn't just like, I would long to just sit in front of a laptop all day, but I couldn't. <laughs> and I mean, what's the main advice? Here's the main advice I have. You know, the first, I did an Instagram post about this the other day. I did a picture of a notebook that I bought when I went to New York when I was like 24. And I was there visiting a friend and I had an idea to write a book, like a nonfiction book. And I had no money. It's obviously a total recurring theme of everyone's 20s. I was so skint when I was out there for a week seeing her. And I had to really like plan meticulously what I was going to do day to day so I wouldn't just completely run out of cash. And I think I decided I gave myself $5 to buy one thing for myself while I was in New York to remember the trip. And then I was in Greenwich Village in a stationery shop and I found this beautiful, like, just little notepad exercise book that I bought. And then I went and sat in a cafe opposite the plaza. And I sipped a coffee incredibly slowly all afternoon so I could stay at the table. And I wrote loads and loads of ideas for a nonfiction book about my 20s and everything I was experiencing. Fills the whole book, just all sorts. Lots of it. When I came to sit down and write the book after I got my book deal four years later, I used lots of little bits of it, lots of it chucked away. But there were lots of the beginnings of thoughts there and stories that I ended up using. And then just before New Year's this year, the Sunday Times did a list, which is our like big paper here uh, on a Sunday, did a piece that was about the 10 best-selling non-fiction books of the last year. And my book was number nine. And felt so trippy to me that that weekend I'd found that that exercise book was my kind of mad scribbles in and literally like coffee splatters from that cafe and it just reminded me that anything life-changing any creative projects that will be life-changing situation-changing will take you to new places 
will connect to lots of people, will somehow define who you are, will be a really important stamp that you leave on the world. Whatever that creative project is, it will always begin in an exercise book. It will always begin on a tiny, tiny page, whether it's a post-it or an iPhone note or an $5 exercise book. That's the genesis of, that's the source. That's the source of everything. And you can't skip that bit and get straight to the exciting part. So whatever, however small your piece of paper that you're currently scribbling on, that is the seed that you're planting in the ground, ground now for like the most glorious thing that can grow. Wow. Love that. Great visual to end on. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dolly. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing all of your amazing experience with me. And I hope to meet you in person sometime soon. Me too. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you, you too. All right. Enjoy the writing. <laughs> thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks to Libro FM for sponsoring today's episode. Remember to go to Libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M to get your next audiobook, support a local bookseller, and enter code Zibby for three audiobooks for the price of one. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at Zibby at ZibbyOwens.com. Thank you.